0: Yeah, we're back. And today, first, my name is Elliot Lyons, and...
1: I'm your co-host, Emily Robita.
0: And what are we going to talk about today? Today
1: we are talking about cross-border payments with Pedro Batista and Laura Rofe.
0: That's right, because we are a podcast about payments, we so are indeed. it's appropriate we talk about some cross-border payments, one of the biggest pain points for uh, businesses everywhere, so...
1: And that it is. Stay this tuned. episode is also sponsored by PayHawk. So enjoy the show. Welcome to Paytech Talk, the podcast about payments. My name is Emily Robita. I'm your co-host and I also have my other co-host.
0: My name is Elliot Lyons, your second co-host. And great, you nailed the most important part of the podcast, which was saying your name first. I always forget that part. So good job, Emily. Thanks. And uh, today we are going to talk about, I guess, one of the most interesting uh, topics in payments cross-border payments both interesting because they're uh their complexity and they're important so for that we have two guests today one from payhawk and the other from thunes did i pronounce it right thunes
2: yes there's a few different versions of it <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh,
0: oh oh okay which one's the right one though
2: i'm i'm go tunes
0: okay cool tunes okay so how about laura you go first
2: Sure. Um, yes, so my name is Laura Rofe. Um I am Australian, lived in London for 11 years and now currently residing in sunny Barcelona. And uh, I've been in uh, payments for over 14 years now and, and currently working as a director of account management
1: at MIA. Amazing. Great. Um, and Pedro, could you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thank
3: you for having me. Uh, so yeah, so my name is uh, Pedro Batista. I'm originally Portuguese. I've been in London for 13 years. I've been in financial services, 20 years fintech around 10 years before fintech was cool even um and i work for a company called payhawk which is a spend management uh unicorn Uh, and my role here is the uk ceo so take responsibility for everything that's the regulated side of the business And I also have a global remit as VP of payments and
1: operations for the firm. Okay, so let's hop right into cross-border payments. We're going to start off with the basics, um, just in case anybody doesn't really know. Could we get a brief definition, but also why cross-border payments are so important? Um, Laura, if you would like to start.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think cross-border payments is something we've been talking about for, for a number of different years, um, haven't we? And I think it's becoming more and more um, important. So a simple example is maybe um, Pedro is based in the UK, I'm based in Spain, and we want to send some money to each other. So um, it's simply sending money across uh, certain borders is, is probably the simplest explanation. And, and this can happen in a number of different ways. You know, Pedro and I as individuals, but maybe businesses want to send money cross borders as well. So it happens in a multitude of, of elements. And I think when it comes to cross border payments and, and why it's important, some stats that I saw recently, and this is quite focused on the British market, but 22% of Brits um, said that they they think that their bank gives them a fair deal when it comes to doing cross border payments, meaning the other 78% um, think that's not the case at all. So I think, you know, this is just one example of where we see, you know, a breakdown in cross-border payments. There's lack of transparency, you know, a letdown in, in consumer trust. And and that's why I think one of the reasons it's really starting to to drive like innovation and technology and and more more collaboration as we want more efficient cross border payment solutions. This area is an area where we're starting to see the collaboration between governments and, and, and regulators, right, uh, businesses at a, at a global level, which I think think is fantastic. It's it's a way and a conduit towards you know making payments more faster, more secure, more more cost effective. I think that also kind of ties into you know global trade. And, and enabling more sort of seamless transfers and funds between parties um, in different countries, and I think it's particularly important for businesses that are importing and exporting goods and its services. And and one of there, there's plenty of areas where why I think it's important. I'm sure Pedro will touch on a couple as well, but one that's quite close to to me. I have spoken with Emily and Elliot before about financial inclusion, right, and, and how it really you know can help from an economic development perspective. So outside of, you know, globalization, this is another important area where cross-border payments ties into it. And 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 what why is that? Well, you know, I think all of us on this call here have a bank account, right? But uh, it's easy to assume that most people in the world have access to financial services, but actually 1.7 billion people are unbanked globally. So Cross-border payments can help with the likes of, you know, helping people uh, in more emerging markets. It can help women, for example, have more access to financial services and credit and sending money back home, for example. So for me, it's essentially allowing people and businesses in in different parts of the world to really participate in in the global economy.
1: Pedro, do you have anything to add?
3: Absolutely. So if I zoom out a little bit uh, from what Laura mentioned, the way I structured it is first quantify how big this market is. So we see a lot of players that have been very successful at targeting this market with hundreds of billions of flow, and they're still kind of scratching the surface. So just to put it in context, this is a 150 trillion market. So it's quite a chunky size market. And why do I think it's important? So I think Uh, Cross-border payments is kind of one of the core foundations or pillars of the global economy. It's one of the key levers to increase the velocity and the access to markets uh, that we can pull, okay? So if you think about it, most of the times you have probably three pillars, at least that's how I define it. So one is geopolitics. So how easy it is for different markets to uh, connect with one another on a commercial level. The other one is tariffs. So as Laura alluded to, the import and export is quite important that there is a competitive tariff model to ensure that the global economy can uh, really uh, work well. And so the third one is how do you actually the flow of money, right? So, And it's not difficult to see how payments is quite of a core element to this whole equation. Um, And I see it as one of the key levers in the velocity of globalization of accelerating how seamless the global economy is uh, transaction within itself. So that's one of the key levers, both on a B2B standpoint, so obviously business payments, but also from, we see more and more that there's a lot of migratory flows of people going to economies. We see COVID kind of accentuated the, this transition into more remote work. And so naturally that means that there is two core markets also from an individual standpoint, that they want to send uh, money to their home market, either because of their families are still there or they have been expats into a specific market and they have their home base where they have a house. So we see how this market is quite important. And so Payhawk is mostly focused on the B2B side and the novel aspect to it is that we Mm -hmm. allow CFOs to have a great piece of technology that basically does vertical integration of their account payable to their suppliers to allow the employees to travel and to have a seamless integration of that tech stack of the company into the expenses itself. So reading invoices, paying invoices, having a great logic of how to read all of that information, screening it and populating that into a payment on an employee standpoint is Obviously, you know, like companies have their employees, critical employees at management level are traveling all over the world, and they wanna be able to give them a payment instrument because they are representing the company. And so naturally they're using that payment instrument when they travel, so the so-called traveling in entertainment. And so the CFO has real time access to their expenses if they wanna to top up because they need a bigger budget. And immediately there's an upload of a receipt, that receipt that gets fed into the ERP And so our approach here is we want to be that agent of change by allowing more seamless vertical integration of the all end-to-end payment flow to allow B2B companies, so B2B flow or companies to have a more seamless oversight to have access to real-time data and control their finances through Payhawk.
1: And yeah, maybe if we could dive just a little bit more into the B2B space, Pedro, what are some challenges that Payhawk has faced and how are they solving it with? their features on cross-border payments? So we know,
3: like Laura alluded to this, so we know they're not transparent. This is very much an infrastructure that's more than 50 years old and that the underlying technology has not been kind of catered to all of this innovation that's happening on top of the existing financial infrastructure. So the way that uh, PayHawk is approaching this is how do you see the pain points? And how do you build an incredible customer centric product to allow some critical elements uh, to be mitigated? So I think first and foremost is having a great piece of technology. And the second one is having access to real time data. So this continues to be from a B2B standpoint, continues to be the two biggest pain points that we hear about. There is already access to markets, but I think the missing link here is real time and vertical integration of technology. And so this is why we've been pretty much focusing on understanding our customers' ecosystem, understanding the B2B side of things. So we initially started with a card products. Most recently we've been evolving from the expenses side to a more holistic spend management where we are integrated with ERP systems from the firms. So we have integrations with some of the biggest ERP systems. And so naturally you see how seamless this whole experience is gonna be for our core personas, which is CFOs of some of the largest companies in the world. And this is addressing those key points that I mentioned previously. So great technology that allows that vertical integration of information and real-time data. So those are the two key elements. Uh, We've been more focused on Europe. We've also launched the US and we have plans to go out of these markets and go into APAC, for example. And so the idea there is that to have that automation, we're basically allowing a more seamless flow of data to flow through the system. And ultimately, that allows our customers to be focused on their core business. How can they get better at their core business and not get distracted with manual processes, manual upload of invoices, I heard something quite funny that McKinsey was involved in solving a big problem, one of their oil and gas companies, which is this shipping of invoices into oil rigs in the middle of the sea. So we don't believe in anything being manual. We believe in this, as I keep on saying, the vertical integration. And so this flow of information that you have stakeholders on the ground that can upload that information that gets fed into the middle office functions that support the global businesses and they have real-time access to one, the data, two, permissions, and they can do the permissions on top of it. They can build all the permissions they want with the right (coughs) level of access, the right level of permissions to approve payments through certain thresholds, uh, increase budgets, allow local teams to have bigger budgets, real-time as well. So this is why we've been focusing just allowing, empowering finance teams all over the world to to have a better control of their ecosystem.
2: And um, I think it's super interesting what, what PayHawk is doing in that space. And I think, you know, to add to that further in terms of the challenges from a cross-border perspective, you know, it's about you know speed. It's about security, cost, being cost effective, and and if you look at it, you know, say for example, a B two B payment flow and, and how cross border might work today. As a business, you may have you know multiple you know, suppliers to pay on a regular basis who might be cross border. Challenge, especially, how do you send those payments? Is it through your bank? Is it through a payments platform? Then, you know, as it's cross-border, you have currency considerations, right? Um, So there's volatilities and fluctuations. You need to think about how you might mitigate some of these risks. And and I think, you know, what you pay one month may vary from the next month, right? And, And... How do you forecast that? How do you budget? And it's even more of a consideration when it comes to to costs, right? And you've touched on it too, Pedro, and it's not just the cost of transaction, I think it's like transparency of cost. And at Tunes, we talk about how, what if you could receive a payment like a whatsapp message right you get your two little blue ticks at the end Um, you're like yes my payment's gone through and I, i think um you know not everybody realizes that there's so many multiple touch points when it comes to sending money abroad you've got you know, your banks, your financial platforms you're dealing with. And then they have theirs, their intermediary banks that they deal with. And everybody wants to take a cut and there's no side of this. So I think, you know, the, the elements, multiple, multiple challenges across the market. But I think one of the good things is that there are a lot of players out there now that um, are trying to solve these pain points. So hopefully we see um, a good change across the, the future of our cross-border payments.
3: And if I can add, I think Laura just nailed it on her head, is like we actually see now 10 years ago, as I was saying, I joined this, uh, back then it was not a, a sexy industry to be in, but I joined this whole transformation that's happening in the industry where you see incredible levels of technology and innovation happening on top of traditional financial services. And so, we still see that the global economy is based on this correspondent banking network. And this is dominated by the likes of the network, which is SWIFT, and some of the biggest banks in the world, which is Citibank, JP Morgan, HSBC, Deutsche Bank, and a few others. So our proposition here is to make a seamless experience to to integrate all of this into a very transparent end-to-end information, That becomes kind of the amazon tracking end-to-end data that we provide to our customers with real-time access to that specific data so they can see everything that happened within the flow that they control so the other issues that obviously laura also mentioned i'd like to touch a little bit on it so the main issues continue to be costs the cost of transactions they continue to be incredibly high and we are working to address that. Companies like Payhawk, Tunes, they very narrowly focus to kind of bring that access to ultimately bring that scale that will drive costs down. Okay, So as I said, costs, the speed is very important naturally because it increases the velocity of the global economy and then transparency, which I also touched base. And these are the core elements of what what the current issues are. One thing that I think is very positive, and we've seen this in the electric car uh, innovation, that you have one huge mover, which is Tesla. All of a sudden, when they first launched that product, everybody thought, this is never going to be feasible. And so naturally, the big auto manufacturers, nobody wanted to do that product because they thought infrastructure is not there, they're too expensive to produce, they're going to be too expensive for customers to access that, but we know this is a question of time, right? As you bring, uh, you build that muscle, that cadence, um, and you bring this product to the mass markets, everybody is going to have better access with a lower cost. And so we think this, the same thing is happening with payments, and it's been happening. This transformation has been happening over the last ten years. And you saw now some of the biggest banks are now trying to address a market that before they didn't want to target, right? So you saw now HSBC is moving into the space that uh, Wise uh, has been traditionally catering for. And so this is a very welcome move by people like ourselves because the more people are doing it, the more the better access, the more scaling, the more competitive markets are going to be created. And we saw this on a consumer standpoint. I think we are pretty much there from a consumer standpoint. We created this environment of innovation, this access competitive landscape that brings prices and access. And so now we are going, I think the transformation is happening real time in front of our eyes on a B2C standpoint. Uh, and we want to be the agent of change on that area.
0: Nice. Thanks for that uh, very long and thorough answer. So I have a question because it seems like we're, we're hitting on this like the same few points. Of course, there's like a speed and there's a a cost, but all these are kind of mediated by technology, right? (laughs) Uh, Since we're, you know, we're in payments and it's, you know, it's, it's all tech basically. So like on the tech side, what are companies doing using the tech to make things more efficient and bring costs down? Pedro, Laura, either, either one can uh, take a bite at this one.
2: I can start in in probably um, one area that's uh, from my background, my expertise is, is really when it comes to cross border payments, you know, businesses and the like want to be focusing on their customers and, and helping and enhancing what their customers wanting to do. And one of the challenges, you know, what sort of payments network do they need to have access to to be able to, to do that to provide. These days we, we've all heard about alternative payment methods, right? And the methods that we prefer to pay with in each of our regions and our countries. And I think it's a, you know companies tunes is a payments infrastructure provider at a, at a global Level right, and I think from a technology perspective, it'd be more and more important for companies like this and, and for businesses to connect to to have these infrastructure providers in place. And our bread and butter is really around building out that network. We're the ones having the connections with the banks, with the, the payment schemes, and the different companies to, in order to. And help partner and enable payment service providers and, and merchants to be able to, you know, through a single API connection, um, to have access to hundreds of payment methods around the world. So I think from a technology perspective, it's... Um, allowing those those companies to simplify for, for the business and the end user access to a, a network of organizations. So, so that would be my input from, from working with infrastructure providers. Um, I'm sure Pedro has got some technologies from his side as well.
3: Yeah, so the way that I, I distinguish this or the way that I, I approach this in a first principles manner is we have obviously two elements, hence why it's called FinTech, right? So you have the technology layer and you have the financial infrastructure layer. So from a financial infrastructure layer, before we go into technology, there is, has been very little innovation happening, if I'm honest, but lately we've been seeing some cross-border functionality coming into play. What do I mean by this? We saw great innovation happening on a domestic level, where there is a lot of um, innovation happening with the likes of Ideal, uh, faster payments in the UK, and other real-time payment mechanisms, but this has not translated into a workable model uh, for cross-border. So we've seen in in Asia, for example, there's a few leading countries that are kind of doing this, trying to bring the real-time element to cross-border, where they're doing kind of in between two or three big economies in Asia, the possibility of those three or four clearing schemes to be connected with one another, allowing that cross-border element to be transacted with different currencies, with different clearing schemes, and for all of this to be done on a real-time basis. So that will bring uh, obviously increased speed and it will bring the costs down. I would love to see this happening at the more global level, having more countries being involved with this cross-border collaboration to bring that speed and the cost of access down. In terms of the other side of the coin, so the technology side, We basically, as I said uh, just previously, we are very much focused on B2B. And our approach has been to understand the ecosystem of the B2B landscape, where customers are navigating their information and how can we be involved and put ourselves within that ecosystem in a seamless manner. So as I mentioned previously, this is very much focused on this vertical integration. We don't want to be another set of tools that are gonna cause more headaches than solving pain points with customers. So we went into, okay, we will develop a very seamless payment mechanism. Either it's a card or is a digital payment. We will cover that. A technology of reading invoices, screening it. Uh, We know that now there's a lot of increase in fraud as we have adverse micro environment. So we have a specific set of tools to screen all of these invoices, kind of making that uh, kind of machine learning and trying to understand where the landscape of that specific supplier is. There's no massive outliers that might cause us to believe that this might be a fraudulent uh, transaction because we basically match that supplier with the seasonality with a specific amount. And so naturally, if it's within the expected variance, we think this is obviously viable. The other element on more kind of back office function is that ERP integration. So that information, the bookkeeping, as we call it internally, is done kind of on a back-to-back basis. So no longer this kind of disjointed uh, process that you have a manual process, someone is keying in a payment in a banking system, someone needs to sign a paper, Someone needs to approve it, then he goes to the CFO, then he also needs to approve it, either in a paper-based or also in the banking platform. We make sure that if it's within the rules that's been created at company level, all of this can be done seamlessly. And of course, the digitalization of the process of the invoice, the payment, within the ERP feeding the information for the bookkeeping, we think this is the right approach to make a seamless experience for our core customers. And so, whoever I think are going to be the winners in this space is people that, one, can have a global proposition. Two, we know that the world, even though the world is more and more global, there's a lot of local nuances. So, we think that is very important for people to cater to local nuances. So, from a B2B standpoint, we know there's a lot of reporting standards that are local that we need to be making sure we cater to that as part of our core product proposition, but also tax. There's returns that need to be done. So naturally, as we embed a fully embedded, spend management solution, we need to make sure that that is also a similar experience and we cater to that. So great piece of technology, vertical integration, and making sure that we, we cater, even though we have a global proposition, we cater to local nuances in specific markets. That I think are the key ingredients to being a successful player in this space and and basically this is how as a company we see this and this is our approach and velocity that we create in the market when we launch a product always take these elements in consideration
0: okay cool thanks for that so uh that's interesting because it seems like we're getting into like this uh build or buy discussion and cuz what what you do is obviously you provide companies or businesses solutions to kind of simplify all this payments complexity cross-border and or locally so it seems like now payments are kind of especially cross-border payments are too complex for companies smaller companies at least than on amazons or something to do on their own right (laughs) so they'll 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 need these uh they'll need companies like you to help them with uh, things like uh you know of course uh payment mix orchestration which we've been kind of dancing around (laughs) with as well and if you two you both want to give your own definitions or orchestrations that would be great uh, as well because um, that's a that's a very key topic that we're talking about here uh, with all these com- different complex processes uh, what you also mentioned was uh, ideal right and since emily and i are both based in the netherlands it's our kind of local hero of a payment method uh, we just had uh, the ceo of bleak on here a couple weeks ago he was talking about that amazing like in i think it was uh Pedro, you mentioned, yeah, that kind of every country has their different flavor of like kind of local hero, APM or digital payment method, whatever you want to call it. So, but with Ideal, the EPI just kind of scooped that up this summer. Uh, So like, how does this, that sort of acquisition help resolving some of these complexity challenges around cross-border payments?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. I mean, if I take it a little step back, and maybe for those who who who, who don't know a bit of background, you know, um, the EPI is um, the European Payments Initiative. You know, it was formed in in 2020 and um, launched. I think was about 16 European banks. I think they've added two this since, actually. But essentially, you know, it's formed to really create a unified, innovative, innovative, pan-European payment solution um, that was really set to kind of rival incumbent card schemes. Um, And you you mentioned, you know, the acquisition of Ideal, which is a Dutch uh, local payment method. Um, And I think like any acquisition, it's very much a strategic move. Um, And I think they've done this to help sort of address some of the challenges that we were talking about um, earlier. But, I think ultimately you know how does this acquisition help help the epi Um, and ideal is a specific payment method for a certain country right Um, but i think the key around that it's also been a successful payment method um, and and one that has an existing infrastructure in place it's got existing volumes proven proven track record right Um, so i think by integrating with um, ideal into their framework it really helps with you know standardization across payments um for participating countries. It helps with some of you know the challenges like reducing friction, you know, complexities for businesses um, and individuals and really I think helping unify payments, the payments ecosystem for for within Europe. And I think if the EPI really succeed with this it's a big step forward in the world of payments and hopefully pave the way for other regions. But, you know, what I would say to that is that, that as a region, you know, Europe is is aligned with a single economic area. You know, it, it makes it um, not easy, but I think easier to form such a unified um, initiative like this, and um, I think you know Pedro touched on it before, like the complexities around different regions, etc. But some other examples, I think of P2P payments is through the likes of like digital wallet networks, and, and and Pedro, you you mentioned this. This is like networks spanning across large populations, like um, you know Singapore and, and cross border like QR codes, for example, with countries like Malaysia and Indonesia. You've got India who's built out the unified. Payments interface, UPI, but like with these, you know, we've we talking about it in, in podcast today. So, you know, one market or or region can be different from another, They have different complexities, different, you know, customer needs and and what might work in Asia might not work in Europe, for example, and France can be very different from, from Africa. So making it a bit harder to, you know, really apply a global unified solution. So I think there's still challenges in this market, but, um, you know, this, this technology and this example with EPI, um, hopefully that kind of paves the way for, for more innovation. That would be my, my thoughts on that front.
3: Yeah, yeah. Elliot, you, you mentioned a couple of points here, which I would like to address separately. So one, you touched upon uh, payment orchestration. So there is a lot of players popping up with payment orchestration. So this is slightly different from what I call the payment gateway, which is basically, so you're building one layer of interface and underneath, you have several what you consider or the companies will build integrations with best-in-class providers. So that will be kind of the stripes and the add of this world. Um, then on the, so on the payment side, it can be the tunes, the whys of this world, and from uh, spend management, it can be payhawk uh, of this world. So we're seeing a lot of players coming into that space. We know the challenges of the embedded finance players that are facing at the moment with more regulatory scrutiny, but uh, payment orchestration is a welcome move here, especially because it allows smaller companies that don't have the engineering resources to integrate with all of these different providers to still have access to best-in-class providers with one technical layer. So from that perspective, I think it's a welcome move to allow more players to access these providers. Uh, so that's the welcome move that I see in payment orchestration. How it will evolve, I don't know. I suspect more and more these orchestration players, as they grow and become quite big, they might start building their own products and becoming regulator on their own because they're actually touching not just the technical layer, but actually the funds. Uh, this is my personal prediction here. But we'll see in the five years uh, if I was right here. The other thing that we touch upon, we touch upon Ideal. Ideal is just an example of an incredible um, piece of technology that exists at domestic level. There are more. So we have Swish, uh, even in Europe, just in Europe to make it closer to our core audience. We have Swish, we have Ideal, we have Sofort, we have uh, in the UK, we have Faster payments. So... The benefit here is that, obviously, it allows people to have more seamless peer-to-peer networks to make payments. Some of this can be leveraged on a business standpoint. But I would like to zoom out again because, as I mentioned, and I keep on mentioning, sorry if I'm a bit uh, um, focusing too much on this area, is we've seen this wave of innovation at domestic level, and we'll continue to see that. So we saw PICs in Brazil as well. It's been quite transformative. We'll see that and we'll continue to see that. So what I want to do is already fast forward 10 years later. Will we see this at a cross-border level? This is what I, it's very dear to my heart because we've seen the innovation is kind of cascading down on a domestic level. And FASA Payments has been kind of one of the first ones to build it. Um, but I would like to see this on a cross-border standpoint. One key thing that's addressing this, by the way, is incredible companies that now started to having millions of users, they start to build their own ecosystem. And this is the power of being a global business. They have intergroup, they have their own ecosystem of users. What you can build is your own wallet interface and allowing, because your ecosystem is now in the millions of users, allowing your users to transact with one another on a real-time basis. Of course, we all know this is not as seamless in the background as it might seem, uh, because ultimately there's still a cross-border element. But what I think companies are trying to address is they're not gonna fix every single cross-border infrastructure. I think it will be a very expensive, very lengthy journey to do that. What we can do as companies is build that layer of digital interface of that wallet, allow customers to transact with one another within the ecosystem that you build that now has millions of users, And we as a company can then absorb that pain of the cross-border element. So we allow the ultimate user to have access, real-time cross-border element. And anything that's the cross-border complexity, we can abstract the clients from that complexity. This is what I think all the B2B players that obviously have a cross-border element to their proposition should be focusing on, is how do you abstract the customers from that cross-border complexity? And ultimately, that's what people want to buy. This is why you go to Amazon, because it's so simple to deal with them. And they're so customer-centric. They, like, you don't have to be worried about the transportation. They will tell you it's going to be delivered by this date. They will give you a tracking number. They will have a marketplace where you can buy from everyone. And ultimately, they just created that layer of interface with very customer-centric, very easy to deal with. And this is what financial industry should be focusing on. That layer that we absorb all the complexity, we abstract that complexity for the ultimate users. Because let's be fair, people have way better things to worry about than this complexity of cross-border payments. And this is what companies could fix by addressing this great layer of technology. And this is what we are targeting as well as a company.
0: I have a question about that, actually, for, for both of you. Because from my perspective here, like it's kind of... The amount of actors in payments, both because of regulation, I well that's more I guess of a backwards-looking thing, like PSD three and all the account information service providers and the PISPs and the PSPs, like all these sort of different terms for all the people that do play a role in the payments value chain. And now we have like, of course, digital wallets, like you mentioned, uh, which is a you know the leading payment method I think in most places. I think right, digital wallets, at least across Europe, are digital wallets. And we also have kind of, I guess, crypto in there somewhere too, right? Once we talk about cross-border, like CBDCs or something like that would be a great solution to this, right? Uh, A lot of these like pain points, uh, you have have your your wallet, you have CBDCs, and then, you know, I can give uh, Laura, you know, some money in Spain, and then I can give you money in the UK, and then I can give my mom money in, in Ohio, and we're great because, right, you know, where do you see, like, I guess, the role of like digital currencies in this, and sort of, I guess, the future of cross-border payments, uh, since we're going to the future. Laura, you can go first.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think, uh, Elliot, uh, with that one, uh, it, it all sometimes sounds uh, quite easy and be great if we could just, you know, transfer here, transfer there and the simpliers and the complexities of which we which you talked about. And, and, and for me, I think we still have, you know, a, a fair way to go um, in, in that regard. I think we're still definitely going to see the rise of alternative payment methods uh, from my perspective go global think local is what I think the mindset uh, will be in in the forthcoming months you've got touched on digital currencies, bank but there's also the likes of bank transfers and, and, and e-wallets why now pay later all these different ways that consumers you know prefer to pay in, in in different different countries so i think yes we'll definitely see a trend continuing that direction but also one area i wanted to sort of continue on pedro mentioned you know amazon and making things easier i think the rise of the the super apps is another area that uh, we'll see more and more prevalent i mean Asia has been leading the charge on this front with the likes of WeChat, Alipay, you know, with Grab in, in Singapore. And these, these super apps is all about applications and solutions that do everything for the customer in one place. And that simplicity. I mean, these days, our, our lives are all so time poor. We just want everything to be quick, simple and fast, right? So. So I think for me you know the future of payments is really trying to find ways on on how we can make the world even smaller from a from a payments perspective but yeah alternative payment methods super apps I think are on, on the horizon but Pedro, you might have some different thoughts on that, actually.
3: <laughs> no, this is a great, I was just realizing this is uh, what I alluded in my previous point, kind of staking us to kind of this last point of where do we see this evolving to? And I would like to complement what uh, Laura just mentioned. So for me, there's three key elements here. So I touched upon this digital layer that big ecosystem players can build and abstract customers from the cross-border payment complexity, which we we touched upon so this is a great way for players that are already playing at scale to to build great innovation on the back of existing financial infrastructure because they abstract that complexity from the clients okay there's two other elements that touch upon the existing financial infrastructure and how can this evolve going forwards so two key elements for me is cross-border collaboration on key economies that transact a lot with one another. So for example, in the US, we kind of a no-brainer to have Canada, Mexico interacting with the US and having that cross-border element being done real-time basis, even if we are talking about different currencies. But there's other economic blocks that transact a lot with one another, either because it's proximity or historical ties. So this is what I've mentioned just previously earlier in our chat, is what we've seen in Asia. There's like three, four countries that decided to do a pilot in which all of their domestic clearing schemes are now going to be connected cross-border to allow that real-time transaction. The other element is that we can talk about also, which for me is the third pillar, is CBDCs. I was lucky to participate in a group that was analyzing the creation of CBDCs in the UK. And so we spent a couple of months of Thinking very deeply on this. And we realized, at least I realized, on a domestic level, we will not fix a lot of things. What do I mean by that? So we already have faster payments. Most people can pay faster payments, can use faster payments, and it's for free, especially on a consumer standpoint. This is real time, it's for free. So will CBDCs really fix anything domestically? My view is that no, we will not. I think the the biggest difference here is that CBDCs can improve two key things, which is the technology layer that sits on traditional financial infrastructure. And by creating that, then you can make it easy for CBDCs to act and interact with one another. Meaning, if we have the digital euro and we have the digital pound, it's easier because it's a newer financial infrastructure because it's just will be eventually designed. It's easier to create that cross-border element that makes it seamless, uh, real-time, and way cheaper for those two currencies to interact with one another. So that, for me, is where the direction of travel should go, especially in developed economies. CBDCs could be a great piece of innovation for emergent economies that don't yet have that level of innovation of it's easy to access and it's cheap. But there's a big... Scary thing there, which is with a CBDC, it's harder to have these controls that some economies have to have in place to make sure that they have a, a stable domestic market. So economies that are quite unstable from a currency standpoint, which is crazy volatile. It's not difficult to see that if you create a digital layer on top of it, is easier for um, this flight from currency, what I call flight from currency, meaning that if you have, I don't know, a digital Argentinian peso, when there's times that the, the currency is evolving and being very volatile, it would not be very hard for domestic users to then flight to the US dollars further enhancing the domestic problems that they have. So CBDCs, I think for me, it's kind of makes sense if we are involving this into a transnational process. From a domestic standpoint, especially in countries that already have great innovation, I don't see as that like transformational project unless you involve the cross-border element as I, uh, I keep on saying. So those for me are the, the core elements. And I think regulation needs to be more transparent, it needs to be more communication with key elements on different uh, countries, on KYC, AML, uh, there needs to be way more collaboration to make all of these instruments happen because the downside of real-time is that Fraud also happens real time, so um, which is the downside of it. But personally, I think the two key elements is I think CBDCs is a ten plus year, so I'm I'm more focused on domestic innovation, and the other element is digital wallets that abstract the cross border complexity for companies, and fintech players will own the complexity and treat it in the background. So, those for me are the two key elements that we should be focusing on. Great answers.
1: I think that's a great way to uh, end off the episode, actually. So, yeah, thank you everybody for listening. This has been the cross border payments episode of PayTech Talk. Um, thank you, Pedro and Laura, for joining us. Pleasure.
3: Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. You've just been listening to
0: PayTech Talk, the podcast about payments. PayTech Talk Brought to you by Cognito Amsterdam. Thanks for listening.